This episode is powered by DEN certifications. You want to deepen your practice or supplement your knowledge for your day-to-day job? You'd be surprised to know how many certifications we do offer. All levels of Reiki, intuitive healing, compassion, animal communications, and of course, our deep 400-hour meditation teacher training program. Go to denmeditation.com and look under certifications for more information. Hi, welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tall, your host, and I am here with Deborah Eden Tall. She is the founder of Mindful Living Revolution and is a Zen meditation and mindfulness teacher. She's also an author, an activist, and a sustainability educator. She wrote this amazing book that we talk a lot about called Relational Mindfulness, and she's actually here doing a day-long retreat all about that. We get really into the fact that we are so disconnected in this world, not only to each other, but from ourselves, and whether it be what we all blame from technology, there are so many other things we are doing that we can change so easily, just make us be more present with ourselves and therefore happier and just loving life a little bit more. It's actually a really interesting conversation. She was also a monk for seven years, which is pretty amazing. So we talk about her transition out of that. She's really an amazing teacher. We are so lucky and honored to have her here, not only for the podcast, but also to be doing this day-long retreat with us. It is June 9th, so go to denretreats.com to reserve your spot because it probably will fill up because she really is incredible. Also, she has that book, Relational Mindfulness, if you want to grab it, because everything we talk about here, we're going to dive deeper, way deeper into during the day-long retreat. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope to see you at the retreat. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you. I feel like it's been a long time coming. Yes, it's taken us some time to... uh to connect. I know. And I've only heard the most amazing things about you and your book, Relational Mindfulness, I thought was so phenomenal. And I'm so excited to talk about it because, I mean, you just tackle such a huge problem that's happening now, but in, it's funny, it's like, it's so huge, but you make it so small and like such simple things we can all do. And, you know, to talk about how not to feel so separate and that so many of the reasons like we're stuck or, you know, we have problems with humanity and even nature is because of this idea of separation and kind of what's happened through our society, how we're raised, how we live, technology, like all of these different aspects. So I was really, you know, loving it. So I appreciate that. And I just can't wait to dig in and talk about it. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, And it is a big topic. And it was really important for me in writing relational mindfulness to make the teachings really simple and really accessible so people can actually learn to embody them. And one of the inspirations for me was having such a long-term love affair with meditation and mindfulness and having made the transition from living as a Buddhist monastic for many years to living in the city of Los Angeles of all places and just getting it that people need a much clearer bridge between the teachings from the meditation cushion and how we relate with each other whether we're with loved ones um, engaging with strangers at work on a date it doesn't really matter right offering that bridge so and I do want to jump into it but I wanted to like what you were just saying do you feel like it's because of that you you stopped being a monk, you left, you came into kind of everyday society. Was that what it was for you? It was just kind of seeing this stark difference and being able to actually notice reasons? Like, do you feel like if you weren't 
a monk and you hadn't kind of gone away for a little bit, do you think you would have been able to feel it or notice it as much? You know, I've always been a very relational person and I've also always had a strong introverted contemplative side. And the contrast from moving from a silent monastery in the wilderness. I can't imagine. (laughs) The listeners can relate from just having been on silent retreat, perhaps, to living in the megatropolis of LA and just getting a sense of what was required for me to maintain the quality of presence that had become known and invaluable to me and to teach others this. I just started listening within for what are the most simple teachings. And there's nine principles teaches we use the relational field to awaken rather than have this sort of set idea that we can go really deep when we're on the cushion meditating or when we're on retreat but not in everyday life not in the kind of uh, dynamic uh, beautiful and messy realm of relationship well and I love that you say that in the book too you're just like your real life is actually the practice like your real life is actually the playing field like you don't like you were saying you don't have to necessarily meditate it helps but that's not necessarily how you're going to get better at this it's actually taking these practices and doing them every day and what you do normally and I think that's such a great you know, reminder for people, because I feel like people separate this stuff. Speaking of separation, (laughs) um, people separate it. It's like, okay, this is my physical practice. You know, I go to the gym and now I've started to have a spiritual practice and then I live my life and, you know, I'm becoming a better person because I sit on the, you know, pillow once, you know, for an hour or something, but that's it, you know, and it's like, no, it, it all integrates all of it. Yes. And there is no separation. So we can say that sitting meditation is our training but practice is every single aspect of our life nothing left out so um, i think there's more and more people today ready and willing and ripe for waking up and these practices help incredibly (laughs) it's funny that you said that like as you said it i got this kind of like sense of responsibility it's when you say it that way it's like you do you feel this responsibility like oh shit i gotta start paying attention to like all of my moves, but in a good way. Yes, I would say joyful responsibility, passionate responsibility. Those are always the phrases that have worked for me Um, because we can look around as our eyes begin to open more to some of the fracturing in our world, to how the myth of separation is operating within our world. And then we can look within and see how it is operating within us, ways we might have been unconscious to. And we get deeply inspired and deeply Um, enthusiastic (laughs) to uh, heal this myth, to see beyond it. And it's much easier than we think, but practice takes the spirit of repetition showing up again and again and again for presence. And so this is, it's joyful responsibility. Yeah, no, I love that. And I want to talk more about um, your personal story in a little bit, because I do think that's fascinating too. Um, But let's just chat a little bit up top, if you can just let people know what this idea of separation is in a simple way, like the little things people don't realize they're doing that actually means they're looking through a lens of separation. So, you know, for me right away, I was like, oh, it's very ego-based versus like heart-based. But I loved how you use words as like when you're looking at something with judgment or when you're trying to control a situation, things like that. I was like, oh God, you're making this so real and easy and not one of us escapes it, which I love. So whether you're really struggling in it or, or you don't think you are, there's nobody who escapes this. This is all work we can all be doing. Thank you. Yeah. So one of the 
starting points for relational practice is just beginning to pay more attention to who socializes, what part or parts of me do I bring to relationship, through what lens am I perceiving when I'm engaging with others, and we can begin to notice habit patterns. Um, as a really simple example, we can begin to notice how often we're engaging with another human being, but there's an ego agenda getting in the way of real, genuine connection. That ego agenda can be as simple as, I really wanna be liked, I really want approval, I wanna be seen as cool or special, <laughs> I wanna be right, which means I want you to be wrong, uh, I want to somehow control or help or fix or solve something for you. These are all ego agendas. They, they get in the way of genuine connection and they also tend to be used, we tend to use them because there's an underlying sense that we are disconnected rather than a remembrance that we are inherently interconnected. And actually genuine connection, which we all crave and we all need, uh, requires presence and nothing else but presence, presence and relaxation. <laughs> but it's so funny how hard that is for so many people, a, even just relaxation nowadays. Like I have friends. I mean, I used to work in the entertainment business. We live in L.A. A lot of us are East Coasters. It's like just in our nature of kind of go, go, go. And I know for me personally, I can speak and I'm still working on it. But that was like a lot of work to actually be able to integrate the idea of relaxation, the idea of self-care, the idea of, I was actually a pretty present human, but like really being present for myself is probably a better way to say it. I could be present for others, but I don't think I was always present for myself. Um, that took a lot of work to be able to do those things and feel like, hey, it was okay. And then I felt like it went from not only okay, then I realized, oh, it's important. But that was like a long arc. It wasn't short. It wasn't just like, oh, I mean, because I do think there's, especially when you're wired this way, and I, like I said, a lot of us are, this present-day society, there's a lot of guilt that comes attached to kind of not just doing a million things and not paying attention and taking care of yourself. And so then there becomes this like dia inward dialogue of narcissism versus self-care. You know, you know what I mean? It's a hard balance. And there's a couple things I would say um, from what you said. First, yes, it does take work. It takes some practice, but it's joyful practice. <laughs> it's a really yes. good time. Uh, number two, um, it's true. Intimacy, genuine connection comes when we are present to care both for ourselves and for whomever we're with at the same time, rather than an either or kind of thing. We have to be rooted deeply in ourself, in care of self, at center which is the foundation of practice. Uh, number three, the thing that, takes to t that tends to take us away, because for the record, it is not our nature to be um, busy. It is not our nature to be right. doing too much, to be distracted. It is all how we have learned through conditioning to be caught in the mind of separation. Uh, who we really are is uh, presence, awareness, compassion, and all of mindfulness, anything related to mindfulness, if we're looking at it deeply, is about remembering who we really are. So just to get practical, <laughs> as we go along day to day, uh, and I encourage this for the listeners, you can start to begin to pay attention to how does the mind of separation operate within me? What are the conditioned messages that I'm believing or still believing 
that disconnect me from an, another person, disconnect me from myself, disconnect me from the natural world. As an example, three major conditioned messages that I think are pervasive in our society and are uh, not true. One is, there is something wrong. So just the part of the mind looking out and scanning for what's wrong with me, with you, with the weather. You with me? Yep. And the next is, there's not enough. Fill in the blank. So there's not enough time is big in our culture. There's not enough money. There's not enough love. But this distraction of not enough that pulls people away from presence and center. And the third is, there's something I've got to do. There's something I've got to do right now. And that's not to say that we don't all have full lives and creative projects, but the notion that in any moment, even when we're just sitting on the meditation cushion, there can be a voice telling us, there's something you've got to do. Um, that's from the mind of separation. So just beginning to pay more attention to all of this and then paying attention in a steadfast way really helps us to see clearly and to step back and have more freedom and authenticity in how we relate with all of life. Because every relationship we will ever have begins with our relationship with ourself, back to what you were pointing to. And I mean, and I, I love that, that the fact is if you can start doing this work on yourself, it, it completely changes your relationship, not only with other people, but with the situations, with the world, with how you're interacting in society. Yes. Yeah. So it's a way of offering our personal practice uh, on behalf of the whole, uh, really understanding that cleaning up our own act and noticing more and more subtly all the triggers, all the juicy triggers in the relational field that are ours to bring care to and consciousness to, uh, meeting the relational field with less ego, all of that benefits the whole. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's so true. I mean, I even think that too, whenever I feel like something's on the horizon or something's probably a little wobbly in my life or not going well, or I can see whether it's financially or stuff with the business. It's funny. Like my, I'm very different in sense. Now I do more about my practice. Like I get deeper into my practice at those times because I am very convinced that it's like, no, no, no it all works out the way it's supposed to. If I am doing my work, you know what I mean? And, but it's hard. So how do you teach that to people in the sense of like, how do we teach people to not be so attached to, I know you say it in the book as attached to outcome in other ways, which I love because I try and work with that too of how do you teach them not to necessarily be attached to if this works out or if it doesn't or how, because basically how do, how do you teach people that if you can strengthen yourself and strengthen your relationship with yourself and go back to remembering who you are, you'll be surprised how that stuff works out when someone might be going through a lot of shit. Like for instance, I was talking to a friend the other day who's had a shitty divorce and an, you know, an ex-husband who kind of dangles the money and two kids to feed. And you know, and it's, it's hard because I can see it where I'm like, oh, I, I, I know things will shift, but there's so much focus on, but when, if I can just get this money, then it'll get better. If I can just do this, it'll get better. How do you get people to start shifting that perspective when in fairness, you may not totally understand it. You're like, yeah, I'm not in that situation. I know it's really hard. How can you get them to shift the focus to start being able to take care of themselves better? Thank you for that question. And first, go back to that share and use the word wobbly. One of the translations 
uh, in Buddhism of suffering or dukkha is wheel off center. And the image is if there's a vehicle and that is us, our life, and um, one of the wheels is off, everything that that vehicle is carrying uh, wobbles, is affected. So I remember when I attended my first meditation retreat uh, when I was young, just after high school, and I I wanted to heal and fix uh, a relationship dynamic and a uh, health issue and my relationship with family and you know all kinds of things. And um, that metaphor of wheel off center helped me see so clearly that, oh, it's just when I learn to come back to center and be still and settle when I'm centered. All of those externals in my life are impacted by that. I, I see them more clearly. I understand more how to navigate them or make a skillful choice in response to them. I have more spaciousness and compassion in my understanding of all of those things going on in my life. So that's the first thing I would say. And then about how to help someone who's having a really hard time, maybe in a really uh, difficult uh, life transition, uh, understand the importance of centering. <laughs> um, first, let's just remind ourselves of the invaluable uh, effect of listening, of being a deep listener, uh, both to ourself and to anyone in need. Uh, listening is really the essence of a meditation practice. But when someone who's suffering is met by listening, really being deeply listened to, that person is generally, generally has the experience that they're being met with uh, acceptance, with presence, and with compassion. And just that can give that person a, an experience in themselves of settling a little bit. So we just learn it experientially. Oh, wow, nothing is actually more invaluable than um, the life experience of feeling at peace and centered because life will bring it all, right? The joys and the sorrows and life is short. And so I, we really want to be here to meet all of that um, with love, with presence. We, we begin to understand that as we practice. I'll share one um, other piece in response nice. to your question. And that's that, you know, when I was young, uh, I learned to meditate at the very same time as I learned to be an organic gardener. I'd grown <laughs> up with parents gardening, but really at that moment in my life, I, I was becoming an organic farmer, which I did for a number of years. And the overlap in the lessons of the two are many. And one is a teaching uh, I call process over product. So to follow this metaphor, uh, a conventional gardener, conventional agriculture, we all know well, um, wreaks havoc on the land in order to grow more, faster, bigger, better, right? Yeah. And in the name of that, I want to get to this product. We deplete the soil. We pollute the soil. We use synthetic fertilizers, we do all kinds of things that are unhelpful. An organic gardener has a very different approach. Their approach is, I want to grow healthy soil. I want to cultivate soil. That's my job as a gardener because I know and I trust that everything that is good, healthy, and abundant grows from healthy soil. So that gardener's focus is going to be completely on the process rather than the product. And the product is going to be amazing, by the way. <laughs> so when we take that into practice and into life, it works the same way. 
if we're focused on externals and focused on the product and how things look and um, what I want to get, then we will deplete our internal soil, okay? We will deplete ourselves. We will overuse and abuse ourselves. We will treat ourselves and others inappropriately because we're focused on the product. All of practice points to bringing us back to process and understanding the invitation to use every day of our life as an opportunity to cultivate healthy soil within. That is how we live a good life. That is how a good life grows. And I love it. It's like, it might take longer. It, you know, it might take more attention. It might be harder at times, but ultimately where you get to is a going to be healthier for you, taste better and just be a better product. I, I mean, it's, that is such a good metaphor. For the record, it also might be easier than we think and take much less time. <laughs> so I'd like to propose oh, that. Interesting. Okay. No, please do. But the point is we're going to be happy along the way. We're going to be experiencing uh, peace along the way. You know, so many people um, allow peace just to be a conditional thing in their life. I'm going to go through the difficult rigmarole of my daily life, but then I get to have peace in moments here and there. Yes. A yoga class or whatever. Practice, the point of practice is to take us far beyond that uh, misunderstanding of peace. Yeah. But I, I mean, look, this is why I'm so excited you're coming here and doing the day long on June 9th, because that just alone, what you just said about practice and like realizing that peace goes far beyond that and learning how your practice can bring peace into every moment of your life. That's a game changer. It is a game changer. It is a game changer. And uh, as soon as people, begin to have that experience that understanding that really creates a framework within for oh now I can go deeper in my practice minus some of the resistance of the conditioned mind that says oh but I don't have time for this and oh but I should be um, getting something done through my understanding of linear progress and that kind of thing yeah well, it's, it's so interesting because, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, I think this is where it gets complicated, or at least maybe for me, is, you know, we live in a world of polarity, of duality. I mean, and a lot of it, the way it looks for us now, because of society in present day, and you talk about this in your book, you know, good and bad, pretty and ugly, um, whatever it is, fast and slow. But yet, what you're trying to learn in your practice is to kind of rem go away from all of that. But yet, it is inherent in energy and it is inherent in kind of I think the world so like that is I feel like the polarity within what we're actually trying to do right well here's one way that we can talk about it um, most of us have been conditioned I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here but it's an important one most of us have been conditioned with a real dividing line inside of there are parts of me who are good and lovable and worthy and parts of me who are uh, bad or will be judged or that I don't want to be seen. And even though there's nothing inherently true about this, this is the human conditioning many of us have been brought up with. So there are parts of me and thus humanity that are lovable and worthy and parts of me and thus humanity that are bad. So with this dividing line that we've internalized, we then uh, go through life looking through a lens of duality at everything and how that impacts our relationship with ourself is we're constantly judging ourselves and others constantly monitoring 
constantly trying to have the good parts be seen and the bad parts uh, not be seen or fix or solve the shadow, this kind of thing. And yep. that creates a tremendous amount of work and distraction and takes us away from a, a deeper possibility. That deeper possibility is learning how to see clearly and with compassion all of the different aspects of ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. one of the teachings in Buddhism is that each and every one of us contains all that has happened to humanity since the beginning of beginningless time. That's a lot of light and a lot of shadow. So can we please get beyond judging the shadow, rejecting the shadow, having any problem whatsoever with the shadow? Uh, the shadow and light both exist in us and in everyone. So making our peace, finding our compassion uh, for both what we develop within ourselves over time, if we go deep in our practice, is moving from the conditional, which I just described, parts of me are lovable, parts of me are not, to the unconditional. From that place, we understand that who we really are is, is inherent goodness, is presence, is uh, true nature. We sometimes speak about it as. But that all these other aspects of ourself and our ego, they're not we don't need to judge them to try to cut them off. We just want to live a life where ego is not in the driver's seat causing harm, right? So, right. So I love that. So you're saying, yes, polarity exists and yes, duality exists. It's learning to love and accept and look at it all without judgment and not put, like you said, the conditions on them. And if the conditions aren't on them, then they're not necessarily harmful to you. Yes. And just bringing that back to the conversation about peace for a minute, that means instead of maintaining the story because it's just a story that says well i can find peace when i'm on the cushion or i can find peace when i'm with my best friend or and by a tree but not out in the messiness of my work life or whatever it is we also we, we begin to investigate and question that so we can find the peace within and then carry that with us where we go it's not a stagnant peace it's not a pollyanna piece it's it's just a quality of centeredness and groundedness and equanimity, I would say, that is our birthright if we want it. I, I love that. And I love, it's funny because you, you talk a lot about in the book and it goes to this point of kind of, you know, not meeting yourself with the judgment is also just, you know, learning not to be so hard on yourself and taking things personally. And it's funny because, and I know that's part of one of your tenets actually, that was like such a huge thing for me and my husband. And it's when that breakthrough happened, our entire relationship changed. And yeah, absolutely. And this, and I can, t I'll tell you my stuff. You also have that thing of you don't always have to be right. That was more my shit. <laughs> so just so you don't think it's all him, but he used to take things very personally, everything. And I knew it had nothing to do with me, but obviously I lived with him. So almost anything that came out of my mouth somehow was always reframed as if like I was the devil being horribly mean to him. And it used to surprise me because I'm like, that's actually not what that was at all. Or I actually don't even think that. So I know I wouldn't say that. I'm, you know, and it was hard to navigate at a certain point because I knew I could see it clearly. This is you. You've got to st start. I go, you're upset about this stuff because those are perceived weaknesses to you. I go, you're taking them as perceived weaknesses. So you have to start learning to just really start loving and accepting your whole self. And then this stuff I say you either laugh at or you're going to agree with or you're not even going to take it personally. And it was funny because I watched this evolution happen with him and growth, which has been amazing. And that has been the biggest thing that I feel like tangibly 
has changed. And then because of that, it did wonders for our relationship too, because it took out all of this built up steam that was kind of bullshit because it was really fed on someone just really not being happy with themselves. So like I was kind of representing that. Um, so when that went away, all of a sudden the love was more present and more uh, able to be seen and felt, which was always there, but now at least, you know, it's being felt more. And then of course, as any relationship, when he is receiving it more and feeling it more, I'm giving it more, you know, and then like more willing because I'm not feeling put down all the time either. So, I mean, we can get into that whole thing, but it really was, I find I see that a lot with people. I'm like, oh my God, when you learn to kind of own yourself and like love all of it and like be able to like kind of poke fun of yourself and know, you know, I'll, I'll make it conditional for a second, but like what you're better at and what you're not as great at, but know that that's all okay because it makes up who you are it's really hard for someone to kind of piss you off that way because there's nothing that you're like insecure about. You're like, yeah, but that doesn't bother me. So you saying whatever you want doesn't bother me. <laughs> yes. And what you're saying is so important. It points to how the relational field can be our teacher and uh, what parts of us need healing, need care, need compassion. So in the great example that you shared with your husband, you know, two things. Number one, you pointed to projection, which is always an important relational teaching. We all project and we project often, but to really learn to own our projections. So in that example, there was a way that your husband was uncomfortable with parts of himself and then he was projecting that out. Since I judge that in me, others must be judging that in me too, yes. right? Yes. And then secondly, the teaching of not taking personally. It's so important. You know, we, we take personally everything. We take uh, something someone says, a look on their face, the weather, and really to learn with a light heart to, to practice. What if I just didn't take that personally? What if that means nothing about me? And all of these principles from relational mindfulness they help us to pop out of our little separate self bubble, me and my bubble that I didn't even know I was in, <laughs> and become yep. much more available to the field of human connection, a real relationship, which you just described with your husband. So it's well, a great example. It, and it's so true what you just said, and not that people do it on purpose, but it becomes, a, it's always inward in the sense of it's always about me if you feel that way. And so like when you actually can let go of it, right? So when you can let go of it, you actually have this ability, like you said, to see the world in like way better colors. <laughs> yeah. And then just so it doesn't seem like everything. I used to be the one like I always had to be right and control kind of the situation, which you talk about also too. And it's true, like when I started to find neutrality, and things and understanding, oh, it's just, it was almost like a relief. And, you know, and I think Marianne Williamson even says it too. It's like, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? <laughs> yes. And I love that, that you talk about too, which I feel like, and I, you should talk a little bit more about neutrality because I feel like people look at neutrality sometimes as not strong. I think it's like, I'm not having an opinion either way. I don't know what I want. And I find when you actually can find neutrality comfortably, you realize it's totally the opposite. It's actually very empowering because it gives you the ability to see things 360 and also want to see them 360, want to learn in order to understand where everyone's coming from because usually that's what it's all about. It's some dance of just emotions. Um, and, and so I find that's such an interesting part too of not, of not having to be right and in control of the situation. Yes, so let's break it down a minute and let's start with uh, sitting meditation in sitting meditation, and all of the principles of relational mindfulness come from sitting. 
we're learning how to sit, how to find stillness and be with what is. Uh, we're learning how to meet everything that arises, uh, all the sensations in our body, the thoughts moving through our minds, the emotions with compassionate neutrality. So that means we're invited to step back from the mind of separation, which is always there at the surface judging. I like this, I don't like this, this is great, this is shitty, whatever it is. We're learning to step back from that and drop into present moment awareness, which is by nature um, neutral, compassionate and neutral. So we learn to replace judgment with curiosity. Replacing judgment with curiosity is one of the cornerstones of practice. So there we are sitting in meditation and a really painful human experience is arising, let's say an emotional experience, but we start softening around it, uh, learning how to just be curious about it, the same way we'd be curious with an experience of joy or ease moving through. And this creates a much more uh, spacious experience of whatever it is. This is deeply empowering because it's freeing us from our habit patterns and reactivity. And when it comes to human relationship, nothing gets in the way. Nothing causes more harm or violence. If we look at the global scale, tremendous violence than reactivity. So hmm. it is deeply empowering to learn to find the place of compassionate neutrality, which is curiosity. And so we can meet whatever arises with this kind of, um, of curiosity. It's really where our aliveness is, our vibrant aliveness. And from that place, uh, we also learn how to then offer a much more powerful response. Talk, talk about the duality a little bit of you said, um, what was it, something aliveness? I forget the exact words you used. Vibrant aliveness. Yes, I loved it. Vibrant aliveness with the sense of neutrality. Because I feel like people get stumped a little bit in this area of holding on to who they are. Like, you know, you started this whole thing saying we are all connected, what we really are. We're not separated. We are all connected. Um, so talk about that duality of the individuality of a human and a person and yet being connected to all. Before I came to meditation, I remember I had uh, many life experiences uh, that were incredibly expansive, that were pointing to innate interconnection, uh, that were uh, incredibly powerful. And yet I would spend a lot of my time in this, I didn't know it then, but small bubble of I. This is who I am. This is my, I identified with small self. This is my suffering are my problems. This is what I like, what I don't like. So caught in the bubble of small self. You following so far? Yeah, 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 yeah. I and like then that. And I would get to pop out of that bubble from time to time. And then maybe that would be labeled an expansive experience. Or, but really, that's just where life is. I had to catch up with life by becoming more present and learn that I could dwell in a place of more vibrant aliveness uh, as long as I was willing to step out, step beyond small self. Now, at first, ego kicks and screams. You know, anyone who's been practicing for a while knows this. Like, oh, but I don't want to let go um, of this thing I've always identified so strongly with. Uh, oh, I don't want to let go of my fear. Oh, I don't want to let go of 
you used an example earlier of uh, believing that I'm right here and others are wrong, but we have to begin to see what we're identified with, all the ways that we're identified or caught in small self and begin to be willing to step back from that in order to experience a place that is much more alive, <laughs> much more powerful, much more connected. One other thing I'll say about it is that it's a powerful place. Um, it's a place where this language is kind of tricky, so I'll just be transparent about that. But for me, I know I, it's a place where I began to find out who I really was underneath, and it was like finding my essence, finding my core, um, finding true nature, okay? Um, and so that is a sense of uh, maybe me. And yet, it's also a place of much more connectedness to all that is, inherent connectedness. So we might say shared power, that the power that we feel is a sense of shared power mm -hmm. versus the kind of hierarchical power a lot of us were brought up with, power over, and then we monitor ourselves to see, am I more powerful or less powerful, <laughs> you know? So it's really a place of shared power that comes in the field of interconnection. And at the same time, there's a sense of... Uh, getting to, because we're listening deeply, uh, know uh, our own true nature, our own essence. We can't really know our essence uh, when we're busy being distracted and listening to the mind of separation all the time, our small self, our identity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you talk more about the small self? Because I love how you describe that. And even in the book, at one point, you say that your, sto your stories and fears were an inside job. And I feel like this is a little connected. Can you expand a little bit more on that? First, I want to say something about uh, listening. And this relates directly. I want to say something about shallow versus deep listening. A uh, lot of us in our world are spending time shallow listening. And the word listen comes from the root to obey. So that means we're obeying our superficial surface thoughts, worries, fears, um, obsessions, fixations. And in that, just listening to the surface thoughts, we are um, maintaining a sense of ego, identity, separate self. You with me so far? Yep. Okay. So we're maintaining it just by listening shallowly and believing our thoughts, <laughs> rather than learning to get still and listen much more deeply. In a sense, when we listen more deeply, we really get to begin to listen to the still small voice within, okay? Um, so that's the first thing that I would say. Uh, all of us have had stuff happen in life. All of us have had um, dramas, have had things that happened which were moments in which we had to learn to survive life and so we developed generally pretty complex survival mechanisms uh, uh, be in the world uh, ways that we present ourselves our ego and it's incredibly limited because it's all based on um, the past it's all based on conditioning that we've received from school culture family media, whatever it is, it's limited. It's a small sense of self. Um, meditation and relational mindfulness invite us into 
a much more vast, I'm going to again use the word powerful, a much more powerful expression of self. Uh, it includes this I, this ego, who I've uh, created and who I maintain, and yet it's far beyond that. Right. <laughs> and so it's fun because so many different spiritual traditions have their own language for this, but the graduation freedom to a much larger sense of self. <laughs> and then even back to what we were talking about regarding process versus product, and we want to really not turn practice into a product goal thing. Like I'm trying to find my um, egoless, larger self, you know, we want to just fall in love with the process of it and know that we'll be waking up for the rest of our life and over and over. Awakening is a continual process, but always waking up from the smaller self into more vastness and truth. How, again, like, I know we kind of talked about this in the beginning, because, and I love that you said it's, you know, you were in your own head about your own stuff. Like, so when, you, let's say we talk to someone who had a shitty childhood, and then since then just can't get their shit together, everything keeps going wrong. So whether it's like, has no money, can't get the job, keeps getting dumped, has really bad luck in love, what you know what it is, it just keeps spiraling. And... Uh, how can you tell, how do you even approach that? Or does someone just have to be ready to hear it of trying to explain that idea of kind of the small self versus being able to connect to this more powerful? Well, rather than someone uh, hearing about it, it's useful to just give people an experience of it. So anytime anyone comes to meditate, to just take a few minutes to get more present, <laughs> simply in that act, they're, um, doing it. They're doing it. <laughs> they're graduating from a smaller self. And a couple more of the tenets of relational mindfulness that I'll mention. One is mindful inquiry, which I'll speak to in a minute. And the other is the, the pause, the mindful pause. So first of all, just as I'm speaking and everyone can do this while you're listening, the simple acronym STOP, which is used in mindfulness is so useful as a reminder that it's invaluable to just learn to pause more often. And when we stop, we pause, we take in a couple of conscious breaths, which you can do right now. We observe what's happening in our mind, observing with curiosity and neutrality rather than judgment. In our emotional body, just observing. In our physical body. And in that simple moment of observation, we're taking a backward step from being caught in mind-body feelings and just learning to be with it a little more, which turns into being with it in all of the ups and downs of our life in a more spacious way. Um, mindful inquiry, which when you shared this, the example that I'm sure people can relate to of someone who's had a really, really hard life and now they just can't move forward. You know, mindful inquiry is a way of learning to ask questions, learning to uh, 
um, sit with questions that help us to identify the limiting beliefs that we're not aware of are running us. So we could say that which we are unconscious to is silently governing us. So a big part of an embodied practice means to start becoming more aware of what are the limiting beliefs from stuff that happened in your past that are still really running you. And we begin to mindfully investigate. I owe so much joy in my life, so much freedom to mindful investigation, to mindful inquiry. It's just, it means it offers a gentle and compassionate path to seeing clearly stuff that before that we were caught in and entangled in. And once you see something, oh, it really does come back down to this belief and this instance when that was seated. It's not an intellectual understanding. That ain't going to help you. It's seeing it in the present moment as it's operating within you. That's what helps to free you from it. Does I, that make sense? Yes, and I actually think that's a really important distinction. It's not an intellectual. It's noticing it in the moment because, I mean, we're all guilty of this. It's just, well, not all of us, but a lot of us of just self-analyzation. And, and or whether it's through therapy or just you, you do it yourself. Um, and what you're saying is different than that, which I like. And it's truly not helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're saying it's paying attention to the moments and actually feeling it and being able to kind of you're integrating it more yes you're learning how to see it clearly to step back and to be with the part of you who uh, suffers in that way whatever example we're talking about yeah later in this call I'll offer a practice that relates to this I love that you know you put a roomy quote in your book that I feel like works well here too. It's your task isn't to seek love, but to seek the barriers which you have put up against it. And I it's like all the self-inquiry. It's like, you know, instead of blaming all these failed relationships and all the horrible people that you swipe right or left for, I don't know. It's like, start seeing, like you said, these patterns or this behavior. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's really smart. And it makes people take responsibility for this lifetime versus putting it off on the outside world. Yeah. And it also really cuts through uh, the myth of self-improvement that I think is big in our world. There's a real fixation, which actually affirms the bubble of small self. I've got to fix this broken self. I've got to improve myself. I've got to try to become the best self. Well, uh, what about instead just listening deeply and getting present enough that you can remember who you really are, uh, the love that is really here, powerfully and rooted underneath some of this surface and superficial uh, conditioning that you've been getting caught in. It's much easier that way. That's so interesting because it's, it's also, one would say, but if you're doing all that self-help improvement work, that's great. So again, it's that ability that we can all spin our wheels and think we're doing a good thing, but it's not necessarily getting you to where you're trying to go. Yes, yes. Uh, running really fast, but in the wrong direction is something my teacher used to say. Oh, really? I love that. And, and because, you know, we talk about it a lot here too of, you know, 
people come into the den and I've said it a lot on this podcast too. And I love that. And sometimes people are just looking for relaxation, which is great. And they can get that here. Um, but they're really going through stuff and they're looking, you know, to make changes, but sometimes they think this is just a quick fix. And like what they don't realize is it's still a practice and it's an integration and it becomes part of your day to day and it becomes part of growth. Um, but you can't use it for the escape. That's not what makes it better. It's not useful as an escape. It, it won't work. Escaping won't work. Bottom line, only turning towards rather than away our pain, our suffering and learning how to be with does transformation happen. That said, you know, certainly fine for people to use something like mindfulness for just some relaxation and then going back to their life as it is, but it offers a much bigger opportunity. And somehow in the intersection between capitalism and mindfulness, this has gotten very confused. So sometimes people don't see that larger invitation, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And right. And you're saying the way to quote unquote see it is to just start sitting down and feeling it. Yes. <laughs> yes. To, to make a bigger commitment to practice and the invitation it's offering. So, Let's talk about you for a second. So when you, you've hinted to it a couple of times that you are going through your own stuff or that this practice is totally giving you freedom. What are, I mean, you came from a, a family of, as people would say, very woke family. I mean, between your mom and your dad and also I think it was your grandparents, right? Wasn't your grandmother the one who taught you how to meditate? So, so I mean, you had it very, you were surrounded very much by it. Um, how was that growing up? Did you feel that or is this something that later you felt kind of all that influence? Well, you know, I, I did have an, ex I do have an extraordinary family. Um, my grandparents were free thinkers, artists, my whole family generally, artists and activists, people really engaging in courageous ways in the world. And I'm incredibly lucky for that. That said, um, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, number one, seeing a lot of the suffering of the world that people in my um social circle weren't so much talking about. My mom is a lifelong homeless activist in addition to her creative work. And so spending time in Skid Row and places where I could see as a young person what was happening and then see um, people living so well in other parts of the city and it just didn't go, it didn't have a place to land in my heart. I didn't understand uh, this disconnect. And I also um, spent a lot of time in nature. That was something my family gifted to me. And uh, nature has always been uh, a place for me of remembering interconnection and wholeness. That said, when I was about 11 years old, my dad, who I was incredibly close to, and he was really my first spiritual teacher, uh, found out one day out of the blue that he had one month left to live. How did, how did he find out out of the boot? Like what happened? Um, he got skin cancer and he had wow. a mole on his back that had been misdiagnosed. So by oh. the time they caught it, uh, it was too late. And there were some other deaths in my family that followed that instance. So I kind of feel like I entered a period of the dark ages uh, as a preteen, a really difficult internal period while I was living in a city where Anne was a young person. Uh, grief was not really welcome and uh, people cared a lot about uh, appearances and keeping things light and pretty <laughs> in our world and it was a very difficult 
difficult time. And so for me, uh, that in addition to feeling extreme pain for the suffering of our world and for the environment as a young person looking around and not seeing um, uh, adults taking leadership in a way that I trusted on these issues, just, just created a, a lot of suffering within me. So by the time it was uh, after high school, and that's when I really began to meditate. I had learned it as a child from my grandmother, but had not taken it on as a practice. Um, then I would say yes, both some of the gems, uh, spiritual gems I had received from my family growing up, and a whole lot more <laughs> came to me from then forth. And I also just want to emphasize that, you know, waking up is a lifelong long path. So yeah. I can look behind me and say that there's so much suffering that's been healed and also say that um, even just this week there's been some some major life challenges and I just feel so grateful to have practice and strength of heart and emotional fortitude <laughs> to meet what life brings in a way I once didn't yeah that's huge to talk about though because I do feel like when people are really suffering and they're sad and they're still like in the little self that you talked about earlier, not yet having kind of been able to see it from a different perspective. They don't feel like other people have the same problems because unless they're suffering the same way. And what you just said, and I don't know what's going on with you right now, but you have stuff going on. But yet because of this practice and this like internal fortitude, like you said, you don't suffer the same way, even though you're still going through stuff. You've got it. You've got it. So I've got a, a loved one who is ill and I just sorry, found sorry. out I'm losing my assistant who I rely on. Regular daily life stuff uh, when it comes to being human, but meeting whatever arises with the practice. Uh, it means to meet whatever arises with a loving companion at your side versus not, you know, which do you choose? Right. I love, I love that because it's the idea of when you go, go inward, it's even though, yes, it's self or more universe, however you look at it, you're never alone. You've got it. And, and I, I think that's, that's so important. important. People, people have asked me that, that question too, like, oh, how did you choose it? How do you do this? And I'm like, I just never really felt alone. Yes. And the root of the word alone is all one. So it's in that going within, root in ourselves and finding center that we really know that we're standing more in a field of interconnection, that we belong here. We belong to ourselves. We belong to this earth. You know, a lot of people um, have that left out of their daily awareness. We live in a society with an epidemic of loneliness, right? And disconnect. Which is crazy since everyone's way more connected. I know. It's so sad. It's really sad. So talk to me about becoming a monk at 26. I mean, that's, it's a big move. Like what, um, how did you know that was right for you? Why, was there any escapism involved in that? Or was this a totally conscious choice? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I would say that um, I had, I had been really lucky um, in college and, and the years after college, I, I really set out to find uh, some of my heroes in the field of sustainability and environmentalism who I got to work for, um, to uh, be surrounded by people who were doing good in the world. Because as I said, when I left LA as a, uh, at the end of high school, as a teenager, 
I really just wanted to find people who had the solutions <laughs> to some of the problems I had seen. So that involved uh, outer work of doing good in the world and activism and the inner work of meditating. But even in the field of um, sustainability and social justice, I noticed, wow, there's still so much um, drama, competition, burnout, finger pointing, all these things like human beings still have such a fundamentally difficult time um, engaging with one another. And I still had my own suffering. I hadn't really dealt with my grief and it was playing out in my life in certain ways. So I just knew that uh, my meditation practice was gaining a particular momentum. It was what was truest for me, what felt most important and powerful as medicine. And so I was clear when I went to the monastery to train uh, on what was motivating that choice, but I can't say that I knew I would be there seven and a half years, maybe at first in some kind wow. of Pollyanna way. I thought, oh, sure, it'll take like a year and then I'll be more awake and then I'll come back <laughs> and uh, live this life my ego thinks I'm here to live. But it didn't happen that way. And while I was a, a monk, uh, though there's so much gift that I received in my training that I could speak to, but I get by a tick and contracted Lyme disease without knowing it. Wow. So I ended up leaving after seven and a half years because I was ill and we simply needed to get me some more attention than we could where I was. So I thought I was leaving for just a few months. But when I came to LA, um, I really had a felt strongly a heart's calling. And it just said, I have received so much. Uh, my training has been so invaluable. It's time to just be here in this place that I consider uh, rather adverse and serve. And so that's what I did. Was it, was reintegration hard or no? Cause you were sick. You had a weird reintegration. No, it was hard. It was hard. It was beautiful. It was painful. It was transformative. All of those things. <laughs> it was a, a real journey. Yeah. Hey guys, it's time to talk about our next Dentox live panel. These have been so successful and they are so great. You have to be here, come in person. The next one is how to heal yourself. Yep, that is right. We are gonna have a panel with incredible healers on there, energetic healers from different modalities. You have the chance to learn what does this even mean? How does it work? How could it work for me? Do I have the power to even heal? Can I heal myself or do I have to go to someone else to do it for me? So much, but the point is this is powerful stuff, you guys, and it is out there and no one's fully acknowledging it or taking it in and this is going to clear up a lot of the mystery and clear up a lot of the answers the questions that you might have and give you the answers that you need so please come june 8th saturday night at den la brea go to dentox podcast reserve your space this will fill up and like usual we always have some goodies and surprises and we will hang out and have some fun too um let, let's do your four use um, so four quick takeaways for the audience. What, and you were the perfect person to ask this, what is a helpful tip for a valuable meditation? Yeah, um, for me, what I would most like to offer is to repeat something that I already uh, shared, and that is to replace judgment with curiosity, to really consider curiosity, curious, compassionate neutrality. 
the essence of meditation and to allow yourself to drop all judgment of what kind of sit you're having, what might be arising. You know, if you listen to yourself every day, every morning, there can be a completely different energetic state that you're in. So to meet whatever it is with curiosity, curiosity is an expression of love. That's beautiful. Um, what's your current obsession? Well, I would say a current obsession is relational mindfulness, uh, how we can as human beings return to our innate relational intelligence at a time when so many individuals are craving this and when our collective <laughs> needs this. And I would also say that a big part of relational mindfulness for me is really getting over, being willing to, to get over our duality between uh, light and dark. So many people limit their, themselves and their practice, and this is part of spiritual bypassing too, by trying to keep things light or get to the light or uh, stay with the light, whatever it is. And uh, really to let that go and acknowledge both light and dark as teachers of love. That's it. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Well, <laughs> the first thing I do when I wake up is, is meditate. So my Husband and I get out of bed and we begin each day with a, a morning sit. And I wouldn't trade that in for the world, especially in the morning, the opportunity to be uh, still, uh, to be spacious, to be, for me, it's really being with nature in that time. And you guys meditate together? We do. That's nice. What's your favorite self-care hack? You know, right now, it changes from time to time, but right now, um, I am incredibly blessed to live right next to a creek, a running creek. So I've just mm. noticed that uh, even in the middle of a busy day, pausing for just a few minutes to go sit by the creek is a complete transformation. <laughs> um, so any time to sit and deeply listen, I would say not everyone has a creek by their home. so. Uh, by a tree, uh, to the night sky, um, just internally uh, sitting and listening. And that means not on your phone and not texting. <laughs> we we, we, we have, have to be, be clear. Phone <laughs> is off during that time. And let's say one more thing about that. Um, I think, I hope it's starting to come a little bit more into collective awareness, the, the damage that our overuse of phones and screens creates. But in everything that I've said today, you know, the starting point is learning the value of turning our attention within and finding center. If we're living completely distracted without discipline around our phones, emails, texting, then our attention is continually going outward. And that to me is the, the place of suffering. If my attention was doing that still as it was when I was younger, I would be living in suffering. So I just offer that. <laughs> no, that's a hu it's huge. It's, I mean, it's, and the problem is it's so addicting. So it's like one extra layer now we have to work on. That's just a lot. Um, let's talk really briefly because I'm so excited to have you here doing this day long in June. So it's June 9th, so everybody knows a day long, nine to five. It's about the heart of relational mindfulness. So you're really going to cover a lot of what we talked about in a much deeper 
format. Yes, and this will be a very restorative day and a very experiential day. So um, it will involve meditating and relational practice. It'll involve uh, writing and reflection, mindful eating. Just consider joining me for a deeply restorative day where you'll actually get to have an experience and um, understanding of these teachings. And what I love about day-long retreats and residential retreats is it's like taking a vacation and go home and to bring the teachings and the practices that you've learned to access to daily life. So it's a good deal. It's a good deal. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. I know it's going to be so good. I'm so excited. We are so lucky. And if you guys haven't, grab her book, Relational Mindfulness. It's incredible and so helpful. Thank you. You've been so insightful and you're helping change the world because like you said in your book, if we can just start working on ourselves, it, will, it goes outwardly and it's impossible to change the world. It's impossible to change your community if you haven't like worked on yourself first. Well, I've so enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Tal. No, I love it. And you guys all stay tuned because she is going to do her personal practice, which will be a relational mindfulness meditation. Thank you, Eden, so much. And I can't wait to have you here in June. Thank you. Okay, so Eden's now going to lead us in our personal practice, which is a relational mindfulness meditation. So before we begin, I would like to note that most of our relational mindfulness practices we do with partners or groups of people. And this practice is just to do within yourself. And this is a practice intended to help you, to support you in learning how to bring more compassion to difficult dynamics. So I'd like for you first to pick a difficult dynamic to work with. And this could be anything. It could be um, a difficult place you continually get into with a friend or partner. It could be a kind of situation, social situation that always triggers you, or even a kind of political conversation that triggers you. So just pick something to work with. And once you've picked it, please close your eyes and begin by taking in a few deep, conscious, full body breaths. Just inviting your breath to begin to relax you. Knowing that there's no right or wrong way to do this practice. So just welcome whatever experience you have. And remember, as you continue to breathe, that a foundation of mindfulness is meeting our moment by moment experience, whatever it is, whatever we're doing, with curiosity, openness, kindness, and a willingness to be with what is. So please rest your attention at the center of your heart where you can feel the expansion and contraction of your lungs and ribs while you breathe. 
Now, please bring to mind and heart this difficult dynamic. And just notice as you bring it to mind what happens in your physical body. Noticing temperature, noticing the sensations moving through your body. Just noticing what happens in your body when you're in this triggering dynamic. Gently shift now and become aware of what happens in your mind when you're in this triggering situation. So just notice what is your self-talk when this dynamic occurs or what are you saying to yourself? Perhaps about the other person, perhaps about yourself. Just continue to feel your breath as you notice what happens in your mind in this difficult dynamic. And now gently shift and become aware of your emotional response. What feeling or feelings are here when you're in this triggering situation? And where in your body do you feel these particular feelings? There might be one primary emotion you notice. There might be layers of emotion. For instance, often underneath anger, we can notice powerlessness or sadness. So just notice your emotional experience, meeting it with curiosity Continuing to breathe consciously. Just becoming aware of when this triggering situation happens. What is it that you are believing about yourself or the other person or the world. Please now take in a deep, full body breath. And as you do so, see if you can get a sense of who is the part of you most suffering in this dynamic? 
who is the aspect of yourself struggling the most in this triggering situation? And see if you can very gently just as if you were turning towards a loved one or a child in your life who is suffering. See if you can turn towards the part of you who is most upset and begin to feel your compassion for this aspect of yourself. Perhaps this is someone who feels judged or rejected. Perhaps this is someone who feels anxious or unseen or sad or just self-conscious. And now I invite you to imagine just as you would respond to a friend or child you were witnessing having this experience, meeting this part of you with compassion. So you might imagine as you sit right now, gently embracing this one who is suffering You might even rest a hand physically at the center of your chest for a sense of connection. And then just by turning towards rather than away from this part of you who is so hurt, I'm going to ask you to get a sense of what it is this suffering being needs to hear. What words would truly feel reassuring and compassionate in this moment of pain? And please allow yourself to offer these reassurances within yourself. knowing that it could be as simple as it's okay i'm right here you're not alone i am so sorry that you're feeling this way and i'll be right here with you i love you you don't have to change a thing. So just take a minute to notice what words might arise in your own heart. What words feel genuinely compassionate to you? Compassion can't be faked. You'll know it when you hear it. And trust your capacity to learn to take better care of yourself, to attend with more 
self-care to your internal experience while you're engaging with others, and in particular, when others trigger you. So just take another minute to be with yourself in compassion. And then when you're ready, please begin to deepen your breath. Remember that there is no right or wrong way to do this practice. It's all about learning how to pay more attention and to bring more care and compassion to the moments when we get triggered. Typically, we start then to either check out or react or shut down. And if you work with this practice and work with it over time, you can begin to learn how to actually meet yourself with compassion in those moments instead, which will allow you to learn to have a very different response. Let's take in one more deep breath together, breathing in deeply, breathing out slowly. Thank you, everyone. Ten Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.